Okay, it's time to commit. 2024 is the year for prioritizing yourself. Begin your new smile journey with Byte, and you could start seeing results in just two to three weeks. Just order your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95 at Byte.com. Byte Clear Aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer financing options, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA, FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Hello, good friends, and welcome back. Welcome back to the Bill Press Pod. You know, I think there are only two good things you can say about the Donald Trump presidency. Thank God it's over, and thank God we survived it, (laughs) but barely. Even for those of us who lived and suffered through Trump's time in the White House, it's still hard to believe how bad it was. But as documented in a new book by veteran journalists Susan Glasser and Peter Baker, Those four years were even worse than we thought. Their new book, The Divider, reflects the great reporting that both authors did, Baker at the New York Times, Glasser at the New Yorker, under Trump. But looking back, it also paints a presidency that was totally out of control, far worse than any we've ever experienced. Baker and Glasser show that the violent attack on the Capitol on January 6th was not an aberration. No, no, no. It was the inevitable culmination of the lawlessness and rule-breaking that marked the Trump White House from day one. The Divider. It's an important and compelling read. Its authors, our guests today, are two of America's best political reporters. Susan Glasser, Peter Baker, thank you for joining us on the Bill Press Pod, and welcome. Thanks for having us, Bill. It's good to talk to you. Oh, I'm delighted to be with you. Thank you. Well, and I have to say, congratulations on your new book, The Divider. It it really is. Uh, first of all, I think it's a culmination of the great reporting both of you have done uh, about the Trump presidency over the last four years. Uh, it's really a masterpiece of journalism. I was amazed that having lived through this and covered it and wrote and talked about it myself, I still learned a hell of a lot about the Trump presidency from your book. So, so really good. So, Susan, let me start with you. I guess it's safe to say um, that never in our history have we had a presidency that came anywhere close to the Trump presidency. <laughs> <laughs> Look, uh, you know, we've had all kinds of, you know, liars and, and, and charlatans uh, in public office, of course, in, right. in the American experience. But Donald Trump is an outlier in so many ways. And, and of course, it's in that catastrophic ending to the Trump presidency that you, you see that most clearly, uh, which is to say he's the only president in American history who has refused to accept the results of an election and has actually sought to overturn a legitimate election, defying the Constitution. That's never happened before. But I think when Peter and I set out to write The Divider, part of it was to not just focus on this culmination, this this violent, awful culmination of the Trump presidency, but to to make the case that this was almost the the inexorable 
conclusion, an inevitable conclusion of this four-year war that Trump had waged on American institutions. Well, in fact, that is um, the very first sentence of the book, which I found uh, just about the most important sentence of the book, right? Um, That what happened, as you you point out, uh, eventually on January 6th, wasn't just um, some aberration, right, Uh, Peter? It was, we could have foreseen it, I guess, from the way the whole Trump presidency was carried out, was laid out, and that this was the, to use your phrase again, the inexorable culmination. Yeah, I think that's right. I mean, look, that's that's the important thing that this we were building to this moment the entire time. Yeah, you know, four year war on institutions and norms and traditions, and that's and so no other book has tried to do what we try to do here is to explain January six not just in the context of the moment, but in the context of the entire presidency. And we should have probably, you know, a lot of people did see it coming, but I think even then it was hard to believe that it was possible that 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 you could have somebody who was so. Uh, immune to the, you know, the standards and the, un- the, 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 the norms and the beliefs of a system that we've had now for a couple hundred years. But that's, that's where we were. So by the time January 6th happens, we, we should have all uh, understood what was coming, partly because he told us it was coming. And, and even without the inside information that this book provides, you know, he was fairly transparent. He said as early as May of 2020, he wouldn't accept any election result other than a victory. And if it was a defeat for him, that meant it was rigged. So he telegraphed very early on uh, what his plan was. And and again, every step along the way of his presidency, you could see in some way or another how he was setting this up. Uh, and it's pretty clear, uh, I thought, that there were two characteristics of the Trump presidency, which you come back to time and time again in the book. One of them, Susan, uh, zero regard for the truth. <laughs> right? <laughs> well, uh, I, that that is a fair statement, really. This is a president, after all, who uh, I think the Washington Post assessed more than 30,000 times in the course of his presidency that yep. he made yep. misleading or otherwise uh, untruthful statements. But it's more than that. I mean, it's, 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 it's a kind of lying as pathology that is so extraordinary. Again, we've had liars as presidents before. Uh, it's 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 the it's the commingling of a fantastical array of untruths that really sets Donald Trump apart. We experienced that ourselves in the two different interviews we conducted with Trump for this book yeah. over three three and a half hours. Uh, at times, he was contradicting himself, even in, in in the same sentence within seconds of each other. He told us uh, at one point that the Secret Service had stopped him from going up to the Capitol mm-hmm, with his mm-hmm. crowd on January 6th. Then like 90 seconds later, he said, no, no, I never asked the Secret Service. And then seconds after that, I said, well, actually, they stopped me from going. Uh, how do you even, what's to believe, what's not to believe with Donald Trump? It's um, it's a pathology with him. Uh, yeah, uh, you uh, mentioned, uh, I think it's your second interview with Donald Trump at Mar-a-Lago. Uh, where he started out with another big lie uh, about a COVID vaccine ad. Peter, right. tell us that story. Yeah, exactly. So the, you know, when we first went to see him was a few months into the Biden presidency when everybody was sort of uh, you know taking the vaccine, but a lot of his own supporters were reluctant or skeptical. And we asked him, "Would you do?" you know, a public service announcement to tell them that you think this is a good thing since he took it and he, uh, you know, claimed credit for it. And he said, yeah, yeah, the Biden administration asked him to do that. And he was thinking about doing it. So, okay. 
Seven months later, fast forward, we go back for our next interview and he never done a PSA. So we asked him, well, whatever happened to that PSA you were going to do for a vaccine? Why well, don't know what you're talking <laughs> about? Well, wait, you were the ones who told us. So, you know, it was, it was a remarkable thing. Was he lying the first time or was he lying the second time? Or did he just forget or is he just living in a different reality? I mean, this goes to the heart in a way of both two things. One, his, you know, his, as you say, tenuous uh, relationship to the truth and the question of whether he's lying, he knows he's lying or he just, uh, he just gets, you know, caught up in these reality bending experiences or the second part is though, how he's captive to his own base. He was afraid of getting too mm. associated with something that he could have bragged about as his biggest accomplishment because right. his base was mad at him. They even booed him at a rally about it. So suddenly, instead of being a leader of his base, he's a he's a he's a he's a follower. Uh, Susan, there are a lot of words that I have used, and a lot of words I've heard other people use to dis- to describe Donald Trump. Uh, of all the many words that one could use, some of them unprintable. Why did you decide on the two of you on? The divider. You know, we were looking for something that really expressed something about Trump as a person as well as a political figure, in part because he created this remarkable cult of personality around himself. Uh, and the story of Trump in the White House that we are attempting to tell is both the story of a politician, but also a guy. And what's remarkable is that Donald Trump is a divider in his personal interactions with people. It's his personal philosophy of how to get ahead in the world. And it's his political recipe for success as well. So it just, it had the the effect of drawing together so many different uh, themes around Trump and the White House. Donald Trump uh, divided his own family. He divided his staff members against each other. Uh, mm-hmm. In fact, that's literally his management philosophy uh, oh. is, is divide and conquer. And you saw that in the constant toxic infighting of his aides and his family members. This was something that was encouraged by Trump. He had an almost gladiatorial view of life in the Oval Office. He wanted people to fight it out in front of him. He, of course, encouraged the political combat instincts of institutional Washington as well. Whenever there was a chance uh, to double down on something that was divisive or controversial, Trump would take that chance. He was never going to pull the country together. And also that's what makes him stand out compared with all of the other presidents of our modern recent memory. Uh, They may not always have succeeded, uh, but they all aspired to unite the country. They saw that as part of the role of being the president. George W. Bush actually literally spoke of being a uniter, not a divider. Barack Obama said there is not a blue America and a red America. There Mm -hmm. is a United States of America. Uh, Bill Clinton talked about his goal of being the repairer of the breach, the breach being the partisan breach in the country. And, And again, of course, they fell short, but that was what they saw as fundamentally the role of the president, Contrast that with Donald Trump and his message in his inaugural address of American carnage. Yeah. Yeah. Peter, that was a time when um, some journalists, but a lot of politicians were saying, well, yeah, he was a divider during the campaign. But once he gets to the White House, man, right, he's going to do like other presidents and want to bring everybody together. As you point out, that hope disappeared in the inaugural address, didn't it? Pretty, pretty quickly. That's right. Well, I think, look, I think there was a you know a not irrational hope that he would be something different than he presented on the campaign trail because he wasn't somebody who was rooted in particularly ideological terms. He wasn't a 
partisan in the past because he had been a member of every political party multiple <laughs> times, right? He switched yeah. parties five times. He was pro-abortion rights before he was against abortion, pro-gun control until he was against gun control, pro-higher taxes on the rich before he was for lower taxes on the rich. So he had such an ideological flexibility that there was this hope that, okay, fine, he's from New York. He's not like a you know, hard rock, hard Republican conservative. He'll be willing to deal with people across the aisle because he had to do that as a builder uh, in a democratic city. But that proved to be wrong. That in fact, he had decided to throw his lot in with the right wing of his party because that's where he saw the people who were most uh, faithful and loyal to him. And he decided on a base only strategy basically for the rest of his presidency. Does he believe in anything, Susan? <laughs> well, he believes in Donald Trump. That's a tough question. <laughs> he has not great, great confidence in Donald Trump. Right. Now, it, it, I mean, again, I kept looking, looking for that, um, uh, for his core beliefs. Uh, I, I never, I never found them. Maybe you can help me out. The other thing that struck me. So maybe if he doesn't believe anything, he doesn't know a lot either. I mean, uh, as early as page five in your book, uh, right? I th I found this paragraph. If I can read just a little bit of it about Donald Trump, what he did not know. He did not know that Puerto Rico was part of the United States. Did not know whether Colombia was in North America or South America. Thought Finland was part of Russia. Mixed up the Baltics. With the Balkans, he seemed. I'm just jumping. He seemed generally surprised to learn that Abraham Lincoln had been a member of the Republican Party. Well, it's, I, it's astounding what basic stuff he didn't know. You know, I have to admit that is actually one of my very favorite paragraphs in the book. So, <laughs> so thank you for for that uh, dramatic rendering of it. Um, you know, the thing is, that, by the way, he not only confused the Baltics and the Balkans, he did so in a meeting with the leaders of the Baltics <laughs> for maximal insult. Uh, it, but it's not just ignorance. We have had American presidents who didn't know stuff. Uh, Bill Clinton was never really comfortable with foreign affairs till well into his second term. Barack Obama uh, was a very junior senator who had very little Washington experience under his belt. Uh, you can read briefing papers. You can learn stuff, although, of course, Trump was famously uninterested in, in hearing briefings, never mind reading them. The difference is that Trump was so arrogant. Uh, he didn't care. It mm. wasn't just that he was ignorant. It's that he believed it didn't matter. Uh, and that expertise uh, was something to be devalued and dismissed because he was the expert on literally everything. Uh, you know, Peter was there at the CDC in the beginning of the pandemic where Donald Trump actually said, well, he knew a lot about medicine because his uncle had been yeah, yeah. a professor at MIT. MIT. By the way, he wasn't even a professor. of <laughs> His uncle was a professor of physics. <laughs> uh you also offer some insights into Donald Trump, the person, which I found um, humorous and interesting. Uh, he, his obsession, among other things, with his own personal image, uh, with uh, whenever photos were taken, you know, how the, the, what angle was, was shot and the lighting, getting the lighting right and everything. It, it, is that the television producer in him, Peter? Yeah, it's all about creating an image. It's all about creating the mythology of the great man, right? He was fixated on lighting. He would he would correct, you know, TV people when they came for interviews and say, no, you want to put the lighting here. He would look at the iPads 
to look at what the lighting looked like before he began an interview. He, he came, his very first day, he comes into the Oval Office, and the first thing he says is not, wow, this is a place where great decisions were made, or wow, this is a place where yeah. FDR or Reagan or JFK were. He, his first thing he says in there, how did they get the lighting to do that? And it was an obsession of his. But it's, it's again, it's all part of this idea that he liked to promote, that he was a great man, so much so that it was, you know, he was never... Um, uh, it allowed, he never admitted any kind of weakness. At one point, one of his aides said, you know, the president looks a little tired. And she was corrected by another aide saying, no, Donald Trump is never sick and he is never tired. And that's part of his, you know, mythology that he likes to create a function of the 14 years of the, uh, of the apprentice when he created a, uh, you know, a, a, f- a figure that didn't actually match reality, but that was the way he succeeded in, in entertainment and the way he succeeded at politics. Now, I must say, one thing you do in your book, which I've not seen anywhere else, is you detail how Donald Trump fixes his hair every day, which I have wondered about as every time I see him, uh, how long it takes and what what the process is. Susan, do you care to (laughs) spell it out? It's pretty detailed and pretty a long time getting that hair just right, isn't it? Yeah, I mean that's what's actually kind of remarkable, given the results. I know this would be such a. Not only is it labor intensive, but it's very striking that Donald Trump didn't trust anybody else to do his hair. That he's doing this remarkable operation on himself, including to the point of using almost cartoonishly oversized scissors to to you know the kind you use at shopping mall, you know, ribbon cuttings to cut his own hair. And and often you notice it gets a little bit long uh, and he has that sort of aging rocker, you know, Almond Brothers kind of feel to it. But, you know, the, the amount of hairspray, there was a very specific kind of hairspray uh, that his personal aide had to carry around everywhere with him, uh, you know, wherever Donald Trump went, uh, you know, he does this sort of elaborate comb over slash flip uh, yeah. In order to obscure the the thinning thing, the coloring. I mean, it's all what's amazing again from a man who is such a so obsessed with image that he would put all this effort into something to come up with something that looks so bad. <laughs> yeah, as as I recall from reading this, I mean, what you describe, it all has to go forward, right first, and then. Some up of the so- one side, and then it flops back. I don't know. It's a three-way process, as I recall. But well, that's uh, right. And the, the flip is very important yeah. because if you don't get it right, then it all sort of, <laughs> you know, uh, droops and looks um, really, really scary. Peter Susan said something earlier about the distrust uh, as a divider that was uh, inherent among the Trump team. Um, I remember those early days too. Uh, you and I were both there in the briefing room. I mean, the White House, that certainly the early White House, was really a nest of scorpions, wasn't it, among the staff? Um, nobody trusted each other. They were leaking against each other um, and plotting against each other. Oh, literally, exactly. You're exactly right. We, and you know, as you write, you rightly say we knew this at the time, but in going back and doing more reporting after. He left office, which is what we did for this book. You know, all of the stuff that came that's new in the book is come from reporting done after he left office when people were more willing finally to talk a little more candidly. What you learn is that it was even worse than we thought we knew at the time, right? People would do job interviews and literally interview the person. Okay, I need you to be 
on my team if you come work at the White House? You know, whose team are you going to be on? It's usually not that open, even in other White Houses that have had famously fractious staffs for a hiring person, a chief of staff or a chief strategist or counselor to say, I'm going to hire you, but only if you help me defeat other people on the staff. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, uh, he, he really divided that. And also you, you, you report that um, some of the staffers, the people that were most afraid of what Trump might do, I guess, not knowing much or the risks he was willing to take, were the people who worked for him, the people who were closest to him. They, and at some points, they even were plotting against him to prevent him from taking some of the actions that he wanted to take, Susan? Yeah. I mean, Bill, this is a very important point. The testimony here is coming from inside the room. Right. Yeah. Right. The phone call is coming from inside the room, as the the horror movie analogy would, would, would have it. And, you know, the people that we spoke with, by and large, uh, were Trump appointees, Trump officials, most of them Republicans or uh, nonpartisan government employees who worked and were promoted by Donald Trump. And, you know, they're the ones who emerged in successive waves from this very high turnover administration with these alarming stories to tell about uh, what the president of the United States was up to. And in in a, a long career in Washington, both Peter and I have spent you know, the last three decades, most of it here reporting in Washington, never come across anything as alarming in, in all that time as, uh, you know, understanding the extent to which the the senior national security establishment of this country, uh, you know, was terrified, both of Trump's uh, effort to politicize uh, the nonpartisan U.S. military and, and to get it to serve as his own personal mm-hmm. Praetorian Guard of loyalists, and also to to do significant damage to America's international standing. And, you know, that was really summed up. And we obtained for the book a copy of uh, Mark Milley, the chairman of the Joint Chiefs, his resignation letter that he mm. wrote to Donald mm. Trump. He did not send it ultimately, but that he wrote in the aftermath of that disastrous uh, June 1st, 2020 Lafayette Square photo op. And in that letter... Millie's language is just unlike any document I, I've really ever seen. Uh, it says the chairman of the Joint Chiefs said that he considered that Trump was doing, quote, grave and irreparable damage to the United States. He said that uh, Trump was, quote, ruining the international order. And he said uh, that he believed that Trump did not subscribe to many of the values and principles for which the United States fought in World War II. Uh, in essence, this is the chairman of the Joint Chiefs saying that Donald Trump was the biggest threat to U.S. national security in the world. And I just, this is just a chilling thing. These are not Democrats or Republicans. These type of senior generals are, um, you know, they worship this constitutional notion uh, of an independent, nonpartisan military. And yet, in the beginning, Peter, we remember when Donald Trump bragged about my generals <laughs> surrounded himself with, he loved people in uniform, right? They looked like Hollywood casting. Exactly. And that's what he said, in fact, about some of them. They're straight from central casting. He thought that they were all like Patton. He, not, not Patton in the reality, but Patton the movie. He wanted it to be, you know, these, these sort of tough, gruff, you know, gruff guys, but tough, gruff guys for him. 
That's what he wanted. He thought that they would be his tough, gruff guys. And he didn't understand the apolitical tradition of the military. He even told this to John Kelly, the former four-star chief. He said, uh, you know, why can't you effing generals be like the German generals? <laughs> what German generals? The ones in World War II, meaning the Nazi generals. And J John Kelly, <laughs> flabbergasted by this, says, well, you know, they tried to kill Hitler three times, right? So, you know, it wasn't just that he was ignorant of history, but he was ignorant, more, most importantly, about the tradition of the American military, which doesn't want to be a Praetorian Guard, as Susan said, for a president or a commander in chief. They want to be, you know, a non-political, apolitical force in American society answerable to presidents of both parties. They're not part of an administration. They're, they're, they belong to the people. With all of um, the confusion in the White House, with all of Donald Trump's lack of knowledge or, or um, just lack of attention to detail, I'm still amazed looking back uh, at what he was able to get away with. I mean, he never released his tax returns. Uh, he never uh, put his businesses in a trust. He kept making money from his properties while he was president of the United States. Uh, you know, he had clearly welcomed the Russian assistance in 2016 uh, and got away with it. He tried to bribe the president of Ukraine and got away with it. He unleashed a, an armed mob on the U.S. Capitol and got away with it. Susan, is he the ultimate Teflon president? <laughs> you know, I, I mean, mean, seriously. <laughs> you know, look, I, what I would say, Bill, is that he just he blew past so many of what we perceive to be the guardrails around the American presidency. And he showed in many cases that you could just, you know, keep on charging even after doing things that, that would be unthinkable and, and would sink any other president. And, you know, so for four years, right, so many of Trump's opponents were waiting for this accountability moment, uh, you know, this sort of fantasy of the knockout punch. Uh, and, you know, even January 6th, of course, uh, did not prove to be that. If anything, uh, I would say the Trump presidency uh, empowered not only him, but potential successors in the Oval Office. Uh, mm -hmm. Certainly their fear of being impeached and removed from office, I think it would be much less. And, and I do think that the fear of impeachment acted as a certain constraint on American presidents up until now. But uh, Trump has shown that in the state of partisan division that we currently have, it's basically inconceivable that uh, any president would find himself on the losing end of a, a two-thirds majority in the Senate for conviction. And so, you know, basically impeachment is dead as a practical matter. And that was the main uh, vehicle mm -hmm. that the Constitution's founders uh, set out to uh, rein in and to hold accountable uh, a rogue president. And so uh, I think, if anything, Donald Trump not only got away with a lot of stuff, but he showed other potential successors a roadmap for how to get away with things. Uh, uh, all right. Two quick questions before we say, take a break. Uh, and again, the book is The Divider, Trump in the White House 2017 to 2021, Peter Baker and Susan Glasser. Peter, first to you, what does Vladimir Putin have on Donald Trump that explains Donald Trump's continued support of Putin no matter what he does? And, and, and as you point out in the book, this goes way back. He was a buddy of Putin or trying to get close to Putin long before he got to the White House. What's that all about? Well, he really was. You're right. It's not just about politics. Long before he went to Moscow to have the Miss America pageant there. He wanted to build a tower there. He got a lot of money from the Russians at times when American banks stopped 
uh, financing him because he couldn't be trusted. So he has a long history, a financial history with Russia. And then there's also, I think, the uh, the idea that basically he admires what we call strongmen. You know, he admires people who are like not just Putin, but Xi Jinping, uh, General Sisi in Egypt, Duterte in the Philippines, Erdogan in Turkey, Kim Jong-un in North Korea. And he expresses, uh, you know, extraordinary affection or admiration for these autocrats, people who are generally not admired by Americans who care about democracy. It was so striking. Mm-hmm. At that Helsinki summit, with he stood next to Putin's side, and he, he basically said that he believed Putin when he denied the election uh, interference in 2016, taking his word over that of the intelligence agencies. And not only were reporters in the room, like Susan, who was there in Helsinki at the time, shocked, so was the uh, intelligence director that Trump himself appointed, Dan yeah. Coates. Dan Coates is a Republic, former Republican senator, former chief of staff to Dan Quayle, a conservative appointed by Trump, the director of national intelligence. And he watched this Helsinki press conference with increasing alarm. And he was telling people at that time that maybe it means that Putin really does have something on Trump. Here, this guy had access to all of America's secrets, all of the, the possible you know, classified information and everything that the Americans knew about Russia. And even he thought it was possible that the president of the United States was somehow compromised by Russia because it was so otherwise inexplicable. Yeah, it reminds me of the, what people used to say about J. Edgar Hoover, right? Nobody was willing to take him on because he had photographs, of <laughs> secret photographs of everybody. Uh, and to you, Susan, did Donald Trump really seriously consider making Ivanka his vice presidential running mate? You know, it's funny. This is actually an example in the book. There's a number of kind of stories like this that I would say we heard about at the time. And even in the context of living through the Trump presidency, it seemed too wacky or like a a crazy one-off. And it actually became more worrisome as Peter and I worked on this book and got more reporting and realized many of these really out there ideas were, were much more seriously considered by Trump over a much longer period of time than we had understood when we first learned about them. Buying Greenland, by the way, is another example of that. But to the question about Ivanka, uh, yes, in the 2016 campaign, he kept pressing his campaign advisors on this, such that even ultimately had to do a poll to assess her as a possible candidate and found out actually to, you know, the concern of the campaign is that she didn't poll as badly as some of the other people they were were looking at. Ultimately, Ivanka had to be the one to say, oh, dad, you know, I I don't think that's a good idea. And again, Donald Trump, when he was president, floated and actually seriously considered making Ivanka ambassador to the United Nations or get this Mm. president of the World Bank. Can you imagine? No. (laughs) Yeah. When I read that, I just, I I had heard that rumor, but you really brought it to to light again. And I was uh, astounded. Well, we can't let uh, Peter Baker and Susan Glasser leave uh, without talking, as the great journalists they are, about Donald Trump and his treatment of and his treatment by the media. We'll do that after a quick break here on the Bill Press Pod. Hang with us. We'll be right back. Okay, friends, we are now just barely a month away from the midterms, more important than ever that every one of us pitch in and do whatever we can uh, to help hold on to the House if we can, to help increase our lead in the Senate, 
and win some of those important governor's races. Uh, and one way to do so, I've urged you before, but I think is still the best way to help these Democratic candidates is through actblue.com. You can donate to any Democratic candidate, for governor, for Senate, state legislature, for the House that you care for, that you want to support, or through Act Blue, you can give them your money. Just check out their website, actblue.com, and they'll divide it up among the most important races. So if you're interested in those important Senate races, Raphael Warnock in Georgia, Sherry Beasley in North Carolina, Mandela Barnes in Wisconsin, Catherine Cortez Masto in Nevada, Val Demings in Florida, John Fetterman in Pennsylvania, or important governor's races like Beto O'Rourke in Texas, Charlie Crist in Florida, and all the rest, go to actblue.com. They have raised, they were founded in 2004. They've raised over $11 billion, with a B, $11 billion for Democratic candidates so far. Can't go wrong. Give your money to your candidate of your choice through actblue.com. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car-selling command center, thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. We're back with today's podcast. Very, very honored to have with us Peter Baker and Susan Glasser who are the authors of The Divider, great new book out, The Ultimate Word on Donald Trump in the White House, 2017 to 2021. Uh, Peter and Susan, uh, Peter, start with you this time. If anything, any phrase, Donald Trump will be remembered for the phrases, I guess, fake news and enemy of the American people. But isn't Donald Trump really, what is this all about? Is this just bluster? I mean, He's really a creation of the media and brilliantly used the media, right? Yeah, look, he's got a love-hate relationship with the media, right? Obviously, um, he does uh, you know, say these things that you just mentioned about us. He attacks reporters uh, generally and he attacks reporters individually. Um, he attacked us when we were, you know, dur- during the presidency. But, it, but at the same time, he can't lay off the media because he, he's just so addicted to it. He is addicted to attention and media is the way he gets it. And he basically is so 
uh, uh, you know, covetous of it that he, he even told A's at one point that, you know, there's no such thing as bad publicity as long as they don't call you a pedophile. That was his standard. As long as they don't call you a pedophile. That was the low bar. Yeah. But you're right. I mean, the thing is, it's, it's you know, and, I, and I've been, I was on, with him on Air Force One once when he just started yelling at me and telling me I didn't deserve to cover him and all that kind of stuff. So he has this hostility and so forth. But look, you know, Bill, you and I go back a long way. Susan does too. We've met and seen and covered plenty of presidents. We know that they all get mad or even sometimes despise the media, but they don't do what Trump did. I mean, what Trump did wasn't just calling out reporters he didn't like or individual stories he didn't like or saying the media is unfair. This use of the phrase enemy of the people and this other phrase, fake news, is meant to discredit the very idea of a free press, right? And he was asked why you do this once by Leslie Stahl, and he very upfront told her, because when you guys write something negative about me, I want to have discredited you so nobody will believe it. And that was the goal to discredit a free media in case it was, you know, wrote anything or said anything about him he didn't like. And that's a pretty, you know, corrosive policy because it has a greater effect than simply, you know, uh, uh, an individual news organization or reporter. It, it, it discredits the whole idea that there's such a thing as an honest and independent press. Despite going after both of you uh, during his four years in the White House, he granted you three interviews at Mar-a-Lago. Uh, in your in your research and writing of this book, Susan, what was that like? What was uh, sitting down with him like? What was his tone? Uh, what was the mood? What was the scene at Mar-a-Lago? And did you find him at all repentant? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's a word in uh, in Trump's vocabulary. <laughs> um, you know, it was interesting to go to Mar-a-Lago. We we actually were down there twice. Once in oh, the spring uh-huh. of twenty twenty one, and then again, in November of 2021. And, you know, about three and a half hours. The first time the interview took place in the lobby of Mar-a-Lago, Trump was arranging this literally as a show. Uh, You know, so he's there as sort of a mix of banquet hall greeter meets Napoleon in Elba, right? You know, he he literally, uh, you're sitting there and you walk into the the main kind of gilded lobby of Mar-a-Lago and there's, there's a sign up um, as you walk in, uh, sign up for the Mother's Day brunch now. (laughs) You know, these are, you know, paying customers at Trump's club. And he wants you to sit there so that when the people come in, uh, he's showing off that these, you know, national media figures are there Mm. uh, Mm -hmm. to to kiss his ring or whatever. And in fact, you listen to the audio (laughs) of this interview and he's sort of fulminating about the rigged election and and thousands of dead people voting. And then, hey, hi, folks. Hello. Welcome. Uh, nice to see you. And, uh, you know, Kimberly Guilfoyle walks in in the middle of one of these interviews. And, uh, you know, he she says, oh, will you come down and talk to the crowd at the, the cocktail party? He says, yes. Uh, we ask him, what's it for? When she leaves, he says he has no idea, but goes down nonetheless. And every night that he was around, he would make this show of going to dinner on the patio of Mar-a-Lago. And he would come up, his table was set off by a red velvet rope as if anyone Mm -hmm. was going to, you know, take his table. And the people would get up from their dinners and give him a standing ovation. Oh, wow. Then the night we were there, Trump would just sit down basically by himself. He had two young aides he had brought with him from the White House. Uh, They sat there. He didn't seem to talk to them at all. He was talking on the phone the whole time. Uh, And 
you know, it was just a very bizarre spectacle. Same thing with the interview. That's really a misnomer. It wasn't an interview uh, in the sense of here's a question and then here's an answer. Yeah. It was a monologue, uh, not dissimilar uh, in content to Trump's Twitter feed. You know, there were lots of insulting nicknames and, and commentary about individuals. Uh, there was never kind of a sentence with a noun and a verb and a period. Uh, it was essentially sort of an extended ramble through Trump's mind at that particular moment. Did you walk away from there, Peter, um, convinced that he has decided to run in 2024? No, I didn't. Um, you know, look, if he's not going to run, he's not going to tell us that or give any indication of that up until the very last moment, because it's in his interest to keep uh, everybody thinking he is. That's how he keeps the attention, which he d desires so much. That's how he keeps the money coming in for fundraising. That's how he keeps the political power that he has. So even if he were not to run, we wouldn't know it or see any indications of it. Having said that, I think it's, you know, if you were a betting person and you had to put money down, I think you'd probably say, yeah, he probably will run at this point. He wants vindication. He thinks that Biden is weak. Uh, he thinks that uh, perhaps running will give him some sort of protection from some of these investigations that are going on around him. So in that sense, uh, it does feel like we're heading toward a second uh, Trump uh, uh, possible, well, not a second term, but a second uh, comeback, basically, attempt by by President, former President Trump. And Final, finally, Susan, given what you, we know, uh, and thanks to you, we know a lot more about the Trump four years, uh, it, would a second Trump presidency be, given what he was able to get away with in the first four years, be even more dangerous than the first? <laughs> well, uh, you know, I think the short answer is very likely yes. Uh, there's this very chilling scene in the book, uh, we're interviewing a senior national security official who had uh, observed Trump up close in the in the Oval Office, who said that he was like the Velociraptors in Jurassic mm. Park. You know, in the first movie where uh, the children run into the kitchen to hide and think they're safe, but then click the doorknob turns and you realize that the Velociraptor has learned to open the door and. I think the point that this official was making was that over four years in the White House, Trump learned how to open the door. He got a yep. much better sense of how to operate the machinery of Washington power and how to get what he wanted. And, um, you know, he wouldn't make the mistake as he saw it of hiring generals who weren't loyal to him. He wouldn't make the mistake of having a John Kelly as his chief of staff, as opposed to a Mark Meadows. And, you know, look, when you think about January 6th and what a close run thing it was, that was the term that Mark Milley used for it, uh, recalling uh, Wellington's famous quote after the Battle of Waterloo and what a close run thing it was that he almost didn't beat Napoleon. Uh, you know, it was a close run thing. And with a different set of people around him and four years of knowledge, Trump would go after accomplishing many of the very, very disruptive uh, or dangerous or even illegal things that he pursued in his first term that he was constrained from doing. Yeah. Unfortunately, there are lessons that he learned, right, which he would probably 
just be too happy to apply in a second term. God forbid, with that scary thought, uh, we will move on. And thank you so much. Again, congratulations on the book. We will have a link on our uh, the episode notes to today's podcast for uh, all of our listeners to be able to check in and buy your own copy of The Divider. Highly recommended. Trump in the White House 2017 and 2021. Thank you, Peter Baker. Thank you, Susan Glasser. Uh, and uh, good luck with the book. Thanks, Bill. This is great. A lot of fun. Thank you so much. And that's it for today's podcast with Susan Glasser and Peter Baker. In the episode notes to today's podcast, you'll find a link for you to get your copy of The Divider. Believe me, it's a must read if you care about politics. Um, And uh, if you're willing to suffer through uh, another account of the Trump White House, but this is the very best one yet. And that's it for today. So we'll be back on Friday, as always, with our Reporters Roundtable, looking at the continuing aftermath of Hurricane Ian and the response of President Biden and the various governors in the wake of the storm. Take also a look at the latest on the big Senate races and governor's races in the country. All the news from Washington this week. We'll wrap it up with our Reporters Roundtable on Friday. We'll see you then. In the meantime, take care of yourself. Be good. Be strong. And come back and see us on the next edition of the Bill Press Pod. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, activities, excursions, and more in one place to make your trip truly unforgettable. Viator has over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from. Everything from simple tours to extreme adventures and all the niche, interesting stuff in between. So you can plan something that everyone you're traveling with will enjoy. Real traveler reviews give the inside scoop from people who've already been on the experiences you're considering. So you can plan with confidence. Free cancellation helps you plan for the unexpected. And 24-7 customer support means you can travel worry-free. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.